Holy Spirit, open that passage of Scripture to us. Help us to understand how it applies to our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor John Ortberg points out that one of the things you rarely see in baseball anymore is what's called a complete game, where the pitcher throws uh, all nine innings, pitches all nine innings. 30 years ago, very common. Today, you hardly ever see it. It's kind of the average pitcher maybe has one or two complete games a season. So they made up a new statistic. If a pitcher goes just six innings, that's it, just six lousy innings, gives up less than three earned runs, it's called a quality start. You don't even have to finish. You just, you get a quality start and they bring in the relief pitcher. Man, I wish preaching was that way. <laughs> you know, you just need two or three good minutes in the sermon. If it starts to go south, they bring in the relief preacher, right? <laughs> don't you wish life was that way, right? You get in an argument with your spouse. It's not going very well. So your wife says to you, you know what? I'm going to bring in the relief husband. Finish out the day. A friend of mine was applying for a job that he really, really wanted, so he polished up his resume, sent it in, and then he noticed a typo on his resume that said, I pay close attention to detail, to detail. Had it in there twice. You want the relief applicant at that point, right? But in life, we do not have the option of bringing in the relief us. We have to persevere even when things get hard. And I don't know about you, but do you find that difficult to do? Perseverance. I know sometimes I do. You know, maybe your finances look bleak and you don't know how you can take it. Just one more day. Or you hate your job and you can't get through the next hour, let alone the next week. Or you feel that you can't cope with the ongoing health problem and you just wonder, how do we persevere? How do I keep going? How do we persevere through hard times? Well, that's the issue that Jeremiah is facing in the passage that we read today, which may have left you a little bit confused after it was read. Like, what's that about? I'm going to explain it. That's what preaching's for. The historical background here is really important, so let me set the stage. As you'll remember, the nation of Israel divided into around 900 B.C. Then in 722 B.C., the Assyrians wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. Then the Assyrian Empire collapsed, leaving Judah alone. Then in 586 B.C., a new empire called the Babylonians, located in what is today Iraq, come out of there, surround Judah, and lay siege to it for about two years, and then eventually wipe it out and deport thousands of Jews back to Babylon for 70 years. Now, while this siege is going on, all the other prophets of the time are saying to the king, King, we are going to win these Babylonians. They are no problem at all. We're going to win. But Jeremiah says... No, we're not. God wants to purify us as a nation from all of our sins. Sins that included things like people burning their children alive as offering to idols. So a lot of sin. And Jeremiah says, surrender the Babylonians. Nobody will get killed. We will be treated well. And God will use that to purify us. And this went over really well. Everyone loved Jeremiah for saying that, right? Not so much. They beat him. They threw him in a well to die, then pulled him out and put him in prison. And in the middle of that, God says, tells Jeremiah to do a strange thing that we read in this strange passage. He says, go buy some property. Okay, the Babylonian army is about to destroy the country. Not good for property values. <laughs> right? You think your house has lost equity. 
I mean, imagine if Canada invaded us because they wanted to stop all future Super Bowls and make us watch curling instead. <laughs> it could happen. Right? And let's say their army was all the way down to Everett. Not a good time to buy in Bothell. Right? Unless you really like curling. And if you do, we have a prayer team after the service to help you with that. <laughs> but what God asked Jeremiah to do here, though it seems so odd, I think is brilliant. It is a wonderful way to persevere through difficult times. There are many things I could say about how to persevere. I'm just going to focus on one today, and it's what Jeremiah does here. Act on your promised future, and it will give you courage to persevere through your present trials. The reason Jeremiah is willing to buy this property is because God has already told him the Babylonians are only going to last 70 more years, and then all the Jews are going to come back and rebuild the nation. In other words, this is a great property deal, right? Buy low, sell high. Because when everyone comes back, they're going to want to buy land. Right? It's sort of like those of you who bought houses here in Bellevue years ago for, you know, like $50,000. And if you did that, none of the rest of us want to hear about it. <laughs> in buying this land, Jeremiah is driving a stake in God's promised future. He is claiming it for himself. He is acting on his promised future as though it's going to come true because he knows that it is. He, it is, and that gives him courage to persevere through his present trials. You see, a lot of what keeps us from persevering is the idea that the future doesn't hold anything for us. You know, it's just going to be bleak. This problem is never, ever going to go away. But if we have a sense that the future holds something good, we can persevere. Now, you might say right now, well, that's my problem, Pastor. I don't have a sense that the future is good. I, I just look at the future and it just looks horrible. And God has not promised to fix my job problem or fix my health problem. Well, first of all, he might. You know, sometimes God gives us miraculous deliverance. The cancer is cured or the job comes out of nowhere. He does that sometimes, but not always, nor has he promised to. But there are a couple of things he has promised to do with whatever trials we face. And he is always good to these promises, and he always does it with whatever trials we face. And the first is this. He will use our trials to change us for the better. Now, I know that might seem like a consolation prize. Oh, great. The trials don't go away, but I'm a better person for it. Bronze medal. You know. It is not. It is not. Because here's the thing. If God were to just suddenly take away the problem right now, but did not leave you a stronger person, well, then you're vulnerable to the next trial that comes your way, and there will be trials that come your way. But if he makes you strong enough to handle any trial that comes your way, then through him, you are becoming invincible. The stuff that used to bother me 10 years ago doesn't even phase me now. I am getting freedom. I'm learning to have joy in the middle of difficult things. When I started doing first started doing college ministry. I hated it. I hated my job. The group was small. My bosses wanted to grow. Lots of pressure. The students were always complaining and criticizing me. And after about a month, that's it. That's how strong I was back then. One month, one lousy month, I said to Christina, I hate this. I'm going to go back to be a professor. And then a life-changing thing happened. She rebuked me. <laughs> she said, you will do no such thing. And then the conversation meandered through interesting topics like my work ethic and how I was raised. <laughs> and finally she said, look, this is good for you. 
It is calling out leadership in you that I've always known was in there. It's forcing you to deal with conflict, which is your biggest fear. It's giving you a backbone. It's making you stronger. And I like it. And I need it. So rise to the occasion, buddy, because I want to be married to a man, not a boy. It was an invigorating conversation. <laughs> Very inspiring. You know what she did there? She did two things. She claimed my promised future in a way that made it seem tangible and real and inspiring. And the second thing she did was she said, and I know you have it in you. She painted a picture for how the present trial could make me a better person in a way I could grab onto. And that one moment gave me all kinds of energy to get through a very difficult year. And even still, 12 years later, Whenever my job gets hard, I go back to that conversation and I still draw energy from it to keep going because I want to be the man that she described. I saw how the trial could make me that man. And when I could see that future, it gives me energy to defy my present trials. You see, our lives are like popcorn. Sometimes we just need a little heat in order to expand to be everything God created us to be. <laughs> The second thing that God has promised to do with our trials is to give us courage and joy in the middle of them so that we can survive, not just survive them, but thrive in the middle of them. And again, given our American trinity, pleasure, comfort, success, this seems like a consolation prize. But it isn't. Because if you have indestructible joy, well, then you know what you've got? You've got indestructible joy. And indestructible joy is, by definition, indestructible. I got an email from a woman from this church who has struggled with severe panic attacks for the last nine months. For nine months, she has prayed that these panic attacks go away. She has tried medication. Nothing has worked. Last week, she was spending a lot of time in prayer. And at one point, she was watching online a professor talk about how we can know in our minds that God loves us, but not in our hearts. And suddenly, she realized that she didn't really believe that God loved her probably because her earthly father had always withheld his time, his money, and his affection from her. And she realized that she was believing a lie that she was not worthy of being healed. And as that lie broke, suddenly she felt all this warmth of God's love just start to fill her up like a water balloon filling with water. Well, that day she had a dentist appointment, and that has always been a place where she has had panic attacks. She's always had to be heavily medicated just to, just to go. And she felt in that moment, God say to her, I'm going to be your medication today. Not that people shouldn't take medication, often they should, but in her case, God said, I'll be your medication today. And she thought, that is a big ask, God. But she felt this peace that she hadn't for nine months. So she went to the de dentist without medication. When she got there, the first thing she noticed, the smells that normally set her off didn't. And then the hygienist said, have you taken your medication? And this woman said, nope, but I prayed about it. Right? Not knowing whether this hygienist was a churchgoer or not, right? And then as the dentist worked on her, she listened to worship music on her iPod, you know, no happy gas, nothing, just kind of, you know, the iPod on, just smiling. And, and the dentist said, wow, I need to get that music you're listening to. Because every time he'd seen her in the past, she was having a panic attack, and now she was just calm. And she said, oh, it's, it's just worship music. Well, when her appointment was over, as she was leaving, the hygienist said to her, you know, I've been thinking about going to church lately. I think I will. God's presence gave her indestructible joy in what has always been a terror-inducing experience for her. And she said that she's even glad that it took nine months to get there 
Because she said, if it had happened too quickly, if the panic attacks had gone away too quickly, I'd have thought I did it myself. Now I know it was God. Plus, the nine months brought her and her husband closer together because they were praying daily for her healing. Over and over, many of you sitting in this room have told me that when the worst happens to you, loss of a child, severe illness, you have told me that in times of trial, your experience of God's presence increases in a way that gives you peace and strength. I've heard it over and over and over. And that is not a consolation prize, guys. That's a miracle. Because life will always have trials, but if God can give you indestructible joy, then you are the miracle. And that's a bigger miracle than just all the trials going away instantly. So how can you claim God's promised future, the promises he assures you, how can you claim it that gives you courage to persevere through whatever you face? Let me suggest two ways to make God's promises real so that we can persevere through the trials that we face when they come our way. The first, you've got to get some folks to help you imagine what good things can come from your present trials. You can't do this alone. In this story, Jeremiah is not alone. He hears God say, buy this land, which probably was not an audible voice. Probably came the way that we hear God often. You know, those thoughts that we know are not our thoughts. They're God's thoughts because nobody would think to buy land during a siege. And Jeremiah struggles to believe it. At one point he says, though the city will be handed over to the Babylonians, you say to me, buy the field? In other words, are you out of your mind, God? But then his cousin offers to sell just like God had predicted and confirms the promise Jeremiah had heard and makes it real. We need others to confirm God's promises for us and make them real. Give you another example from that first year when I was doing college ministry. One of the things the students complained about was how boring my talks were. And I remember at this one time giving this horrendous talk. They were sleeping. It was just awful, right? Now, this was hardly suffering, but my career kind of did seem on the line a little bit, and I was fretting about it. And one of the students said to me, relax, Scott, maybe God wanted you to give a bad talk today. I said, well, why would he want to do that? And he said, well, my roommate came today, and he's not a Christian, and he's never come before, and after that talk, he's never coming again. And I said, you're supposed to be comforting me. And he said, but let's imagine that three years from now, he goes to another church, and he hears a great sermon by a good preacher. And he's moved to want to know Jesus. But I know my roommate, he's really proud, so he'd never be able to admit that he was wrong all along about rejecting Christianity. So he wouldn't do it. But now that he's heard your lousy talk, maybe he'll think, well, if I'd heard a good sermon years ago, I'd have followed Jesus then. It's not my fault I rejected Christianity. It's that Dudley guy's fault. (laughs) Now you'll get the blame. His pride won't be offended, and he'll become a Christian all because of your lousy talk. I said, thanks, never looked at it that way before. (laughs) Now, admittedly, he was stretching it a little bit, but what he was doing was helping me imagine how God could do something good with what seemed kind of bad to me, though it was small. And just as a PS to that story, his roommate did come back, did become a Christian, and ended up in my Bible study, boring as it was. (laughs) We need others to make God's promises real, to help us imagine, like my wife did for me. How could this trial make you an amazing person? Second thing we need to help us claim our promised future, make it seem real, is find a way to make God's promise tangible in your present. Tangible in your present. The property Jeremiah buys 
stands as a tangible reminder that, of God's promised future, that the Jews are going to come back and rebuild their homeland. It stands as this tangible, visible reminder. You need something that's going to be tangible. So for instance, write down who you would like to become as a result of your present trial. Put it on your bathroom mirror where you can see it every day and remind yourself of it. Or act as if God's promises are going to come true. For instance, if your marriage is in trouble, don't live as though divorce is inevitable. Live as though restoration is. Go to counseling. Treat each other the way people in good marriages treat each other. You'll actually probably start to have a good marriage. Find a way to make God's promises tangible in your present. Because the bottom line here is, if you have a vision for your future, you can persevere through your present trials. Last week, I talked with a couple who were about to lose their home. He's been out of work for a while through no fault of his own. He's been looking very diligently, but the economy has just wrecked his industry. And they had just a little bit of income, but not enough to keep up with their house payments. And the bank was ready to take possession. They had a brand new baby, a couple other kids, and are about to lose their home. So they were un uh, understandably very scared. So the first thing the wife said as they came into my office, she said, we want you to pray that he gets a job in a couple of days and the bank will give us a break. And I said, I'm going to pray that, absolutely. And let's believe in faith that God's going to do that. But let's talk a little bit more in case that doesn't happen. And she said, no, 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 no. I don't want to hear about how this might be good for us in some mysterious way. I just want it gone. So we talked for a while, and, and I ended up talking about my grandmother, who had six kids, and her husband abused them all, and then deserted the family, which left them homeless for a while. And I talked about how my grandmother had a vision for her future, of all six of her kids going to college. She didn't know how. She didn't know the steps in between. But that vision helped her persevere through very difficult circumstances. And they all did go to college, and my grandmother remarried. The last 30 years of her life were wonderful. And, and this couple said that story helped them a lot. And then I said, look, I, this is really hard. I get that. But, but even if you lose your home, maybe it'll be a relief. Like the worst that's going to happen is you're going to have to live in an apartment but the house gets sold and it's off your back. And then the wife said to me, oh, you know, I guess this is just kind of a, a country club Christian kind of a problem to have. And I said, absolutely not. Losing, I would hate to lose my house. That is a legitimately difficult thing to go through. And she said, I know, but I want to be filled with faith and joy and hope. I want to be focused on God. I don't want to be a country club Christian. And I said, well, because of this, you won't be. And if this happens, hasn't happened yet, but if it happens, your kids are going to get a great lesson from their parents on faith in difficult times. And they're going to see your fears, they're going to see your doubts, they're going to see you struggle, and then they're going to see you overcome and find God in the middle of this. And they're going to have a great story of trusting God and God's faithfulness in difficult times that they're going to be able to draw on for the rest of their lives, and neither you nor they will ever be country club Christians again. And she looked at me and she said, I can lose a house for that. And I said, you can lose a house for that. And then suddenly her whole demeanor just changed. It's like something was just lifted off of her. And so then we prayed, and when we were done, she stood up with this big smile on her face. After we were done praying, she stood up and she looked at her husband and she said, come on, honey, let's go home and pack. And I said, it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but then when I called her this week to get permission to tell that story, she said that their house is up for short sale. And then she said, but we have a ton of peace about it because God is with us. 
She sees a vision for her future and a legacy for her kids of what God can do with this very difficult trial. And that is giving her and her husband courage to persevere through a difficult time. So what's your trial right now? Will you pray this prayer? Lord, what are you doing here? What do you want to do with this trial? Show me. Show me how the good thing you want to do with this bad thing. Give me a vision for that. Get some folks around you to help imagine what that might be and then find a way to make it tangible in your life to remind you of it every day. And let that vision of your future give you courage to face your present. The prophet Habakkuk, who lived at the exact same time as Jeremiah when the Babylonians were sieging the city, Habakkuk put it this way, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go upon the heights. And that word, yet, that one word, yet I will rejoice, that's the stuff of perseverance. It's what the theologian Karl Barth means when he says that joy is the defiant nevertheless of God. Yes, I may have been laid off. Nevertheless, I know that God is going to provide. Therefore, I'll rejoice. Yes, I've lost a loved one. Nevertheless, I know that because of Jesus, I'm going to see that person again. Therefore, I'll rejoice. Yes, I've struggled with the same sin or brokenness for years and years and years. Nevertheless, I am a new creation in Jesus. Therefore, I will rejoice. Yes, my life may be falling apart. Nevertheless, God is in control, and though the wrong is often strong, God is the ruler yet, and he will use every rotten thing for good. He will put an end to suffering one day. Therefore, I will rejoice. You see, perseverance and joy do not pretend that the world isn't hard. It is. Perseverance and joy just say, nevertheless. You really want to give the devil a heart attack? Here's what you do. When he takes his best shot at you, you pray for your enemies. You thank God in advance for the good thing he's going to do with that rotten thing and sing and celebrate like there's no tomorrow, all as a way of telling Satan to go back to hell where he belongs. Persevering joy is raising our fist in confident defiance of Satan that says to him, you may have won the battle, but you're going to lose the war. You may have gotten me down this time, but Jesus is going to get me up next time. You may have hurt me a little, but Jesus loves me a lot. And because I belong to him, I have a future, and I will draw on my future to defy you in my presence, Satan, so that the whole world will know, Satan, that you are a loser because Jesus is Lord. And with him, I will rise to great heights no matter what. So Jesus, help us to drive a stake in your promised future that there is nothing, there is nothing that can separate us from you or get in the way of the future you have in store for us. So Lord, help us to look those trials in the eye and know that you are stronger, you are greater, you have overcome. And may we draw on that to persevere through whatever we face this week and in the weeks to come. And we ask this in your name. Amen.